0: Uh, This morning, the scripture reading comes from Leviticus chapter five, verses one through 13. If anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, or of any unclean creature that moves along the ground, and they are unaware that they have become unclean, but then come to realize their guilt, or if they touch human uncleanness, anything that would make them unclean, even though they are unaware of it, but then learn of it and realize their guilt, or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though they're unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in, what they have, in the way that they have sinned. As a penalty for their sin, for the sin they've committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the, peace, the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Anyone who can't afford the lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin. One for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. They're to bring them to the priest who shall first offer the one for the sin offering. He is to wring its head from its neck, not dividing it completely, and is to splash some blood from, of the sin offering against the side of the altar. The rest of the blood must be drained out at the base of the altar. It's a sin offering. The priest shall then offer the other as a burnt offering in the prescribed way and make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons, they are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour for a sin offering. They must not put olive oil or incense on it because it's a sin offering. They are to bring it to the priest who shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. It is a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for any of these sins they have committed, and they will be forgiven. The rest of the offering will belong to the priest, as in the case of the grain offering. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Ibrahim. Oh, that's fine. Thanks. Good morning. My name is Paul Major, and I am one of your faithful pastoral assistants here at Christ Central Church. Um, And it's my, I mean, it's my privilege, as always. I I look forward to this. I feel uh, giddy and nervous and have butterflies in my stomach and don't know how they got there. Uh, But it's great to be here. And so uh, this is a word that the Lord has put on my heart, and he's blessed me with. And so I hope it comes across to you as something communicated out of love and not just anything else. Uh, Pastor Howard's been preaching through James, and uh, he had a missions conference um, out of state this week. So he uh, asked me to preach this week and wouldn't let me preach on James. So I picked everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Um, we'll go from there. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, I lived in an area that was under the shadow of one of the era's most famous televangelists. He taught a particularly popular version of the gospel uh, that attracted all kinds of people called the prosperity gospel. Preachers of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the name and, and claimant gospel. They took all of the promises of God and applied them, sometimes misapplied them, all to the here and now. If God loves you, good things will happen to you. If you love Jesus, you'll be blessed in many physical and tangible ways. If you give your money to the church, God will return your investment. And while there are many things that are actually true about this type of thinking, the prosperity gospel turns Christianity into a get-rich-quick scheme, a get-money, get-well, get-whatever-you-want. God is a slave to your American dream scheme. Also, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I found myself a part of a new generation, Different from the one that my parents and grandparents were in. Different even from my older sister's generation. Because of the advances in home computers and technology, we, we've been called the technology generation, which is not fun, uh, or the wired generation. Because we're so similar, but so different to generation X, we've been called generation Y. More commonly, we've been called millennials. So that's what you see it in the news. But I think a more realistic name that's been thrown out there, especially recently, is the entitlement generation. I grew up in a time when everybody got a Little League trophy. Everybody got an honorable mention ribbon. Everybody got a part in the play. Everybody got a pizza party. Everybody got rewarded for everything. And because of this, we've become a generation of insecure basket cases who are in constant need of affirmation. I grew up in a world before the recession that told me if I went to college, I was going to get a good job and a good career with good benefits. I was entitled to these things. This sense of entitlement seems to have grown out of or at least alongside of this prosperity gospel. They were both speaking to something that was endemic in the world. If I do enough, God has to reward me. Thus, by 2015, we live in an age where it's not uncommon for people to look at the gospel of grace like it's something that we deserve, that we're owed, or that we're entitled to. Even if it's not preached from the pulpit, I can speak for myself, it's definitely felt in the pew. But this sense of entitlement is not a new thing that was invented in the 1980s. The entitlement generation is defined as Excuse me, the group born between 1979 and 1994 who believe they are owed certain rights and benefits without further justification. But don't get too excited, baby boomers. Your generation and the ones that came before you all thought that if you worked hard enough, studied long enough, and invested smart enough, you were owed something as well. This thought of entitlement is epidemic in today's society, but ultimately, <laughs> It has its roots at the beginning of time. Adam and Eve felt that they were entitled to eat from the forbidden tree. Cain felt entitled to the same benefits as his brother Abel. Even biblical heroes like Moses and David felt entitled to what they wanted when they wanted. They sang the familiar song with the barati veruca salt from Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. I want the works. I want the whole works. Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises of all shapes and sizes. And I want it now. But the gospel is not a gospel of entitlement. In fact, we tried to get the strike through, through entitlement. But Charles said, we don't do that at Christ Central. Um, And Phelps probably wouldn't appreciate it if I just scratched through that with a Sharpie on the expensive screen. So instead, we just put a question mark. The entitlement gospel. (laughs) The gospel is not a gospel of entitlement. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve grace. That's what makes it grace. It's something that we don't deserve. In spite of our best efforts, we don't deserve God's grace. We aren't entitled to it. And so this text in Leviticus, believe it or not, shows us that the gospel is not a gospel of entitlement. But it is three things. The gospel is a gospel of confession. The gospel is a gospel of repentance. And the gospel is a gospel of gratitude. Leviticus 5, 1 through 13 says, is laid out in a pretty logical way. If you were guilty of these types of sins, this is what you needed to do in order to find forgiveness. First, you needed to come to terms with your sin and your sinfulness and confess, I have sinned. Then, you needed to offer a sacrifice. While this passage in the whole book of Leviticus appears to be uh a detailed instruction manual for an, outdated, for, for an outdated practice in an outdated society, it actually teaches us a lot about God. For starters, God wants to forgive us. That's the whole purpose of this complicated sacrificial system that God gave to Moses. If God didn't actually desire to forgive his people, he wouldn't have given them detailed instructions for how to find forgiveness. Ultimately, because of sin, something has to die. And if God didn't love his people enough to forgive them, he would have just killed them. But after Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, God brought them to Mount Sinai. And there he met with them. He appeared to them and gave them his law so that they might find forgiveness. Leviticus is a detailed and some say mindlessly boring account of all the different types of sacrifices and practices that the people of God were to participate in. But the reason for it is that they had been saved from certain death under the Egyptians and now they had an opportunity to live in union with God. But what makes it most apparent that God actually wants to forgive our sins is the nature of the sacrifices in this passage. If you were generally well off, you were told to sacrifice a female goat or a sheep. uh, As the actual practice is elaborated in the previous chapter, if that's something you want to try at home. Let's call this upper middle class. But assuming you weren't upper middle class. What were you supposed to do? Go in debt? Let sin go unforgiven? No. God's desire to forgive his people had a contingency plan. Verse 7 says, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed. Two turtle doves. Or two pigeons. Let's call this lower middle class. Excuse me. Let's call this lower middle class. Even if you couldn't afford to shell out cash for a lamb or a goat, which must have been relatively expensive in this time, you could bring two birds. But what if you weren't even lower middle class? What if you were, for lack of a better term, Working class, living paycheck to paycheck, bad credit, no credit, no problem. <laughs> I know what you're watching in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, verse 11 says, if, but if you cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. No one is actually sure how much an ephah actually is, despite what your study Bibles might say, but one-tenth of an ephah of flour would be much cheaper than two live birds and certainly much cheaper than a lamb or a goat. This is by far the least expensive sacrifice in the whole sacrificial system. You didn't even need to doll it up by adding frankincense or olive oil. Just bring a small amount of grain and your sins could be forgiven. God shows his desire to forgive his people by giving them options. A sliding scale. That way no one could say, forgiveness is too expensive. God set me up to fail. I could never afford this. Even if you were the brokest joke in town, you could still bring something to the altar. But this passage also teaches us something else about God. God wants to forgive us, but God doesn't have to forgive us. We're not entitled to forgiveness. We're not entitled to grace. This passage begins by presenting three different categories for sin. Silence when called to testify in court. Ritual uncleanness and rash oaths. These are sometimes called sins of omission. As in, they aren't blatant outward sins against God or others. They were just simply accidental sins, unintentional sins. These weren't major transgressions against God, but they were still able to make the sinner guilty. But this emphasis on lesser sins... Needs to be understood in context. God is not saying that bigger sins, intentional sins, can't be forgiven. Instead, He's saying that lesser sins, even minor and unintentional sins, still need forgiveness. As Christians, we're the first to admit that sin exists in the world, or we should be. But sometimes we get so hung up on the the big sins of the world, abortion, adultery, murder, racial profiling, neglecting the poor and widow. There's my James tie-in. That we forget to consider our own smaller sins. We might call these respectable sins. They aren't as devastating as other sins, so they must in some way be less sinful. Gossip, pride, discontentment. Arrogance, anger, anxiety, impatience, irritability, lack of self-control, being judgmental and jealous can all be considered respectable sins. But they are sins nonetheless. And if they are sins, then they stain us and separate us from God. And so even these small sins need to be forgiven. However, in our own self-righteousness, we like to point at other sins and find our pride in the fact that we don't do these things. We feel like we need to be rewarded because we don't murder or cheat or steal. We feel like we need to be praised for doing the things that we are supposed to do. I'm not that bad of a sinner because I go to church and apologize to my wife when I'm a jerk most of the time, and keep my promises to my kids. This is nebulous. I don't have kids, so it's easy to keep my promises. But, but in the words of the great Chris Rock, <laughs> paraphrased, of course, we always want credit for the stuff we're supposed to do. We brag about what a normal person just does. We say, I take care of my kids. You're supposed to, you knucklehead. (laughs) I ain't never been to jail. What you want, a cookie? Just because we don't commit big sins doesn't make us any less sinful. Just because we do the things that we're supposed to do doesn't make us any less need, doesn't make us any less in need of forgiveness. Verses 4 to 5 set the stage for this forgiveness. Even in these small, unintentional sins, we must accept them as sins, accept ourselves as sinners, and confess. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed. This word confess is interesting because it means to make known, to bring to light, to speak up, to tell the truth, to say it loud. The same word is used both for admitting our sin and for praising God. Just like we do in our worship service, the ancient Israelites used to use the same action to confess that God was good and that they were not. Confession is agreeing with God that our sin is sin. And the gospel is a gospel of confession, and that confession is twofold. First, I confess that I am a sinner, and I confess that I believe in a God who not only wants to forgive my sin, but can forgive my sin, all of it, even the stuff I'm too ashamed or too afraid to admit. God wants to forgive us, but he doesn't have to. Therefore, we need to realize that there is much that we need to be forgiven of. There are untold secret sins that we don't even think about, but these sins exist. Our hearts are ruined by them. Therefore, we need to be thoughtful and prayerful and delve deeply and confess even the most minor sins. But more than mere admission is needed, more than a, yeah, I did it. Confession is also the acknowledgement that we don't deserve to be forgiven. Instead, we deserve to be punished to the full extent of the law. We are guilty and deserve to have the book thrown at us. The gospel is not a gospel of entitlement, but a gospel of confession and a gospel of repentance. And now a lot of folks rightly associate repentance and confession. I'm just going to repeat everything I just said, uh, including the Chris Rock quote. No, I won't do that again, ever. Uh, (laughs) The two go hand in hand naturally, but they're not the same thing. Repentance is the process of coming to terms with our guiltiness and attempting to turn away from our sin and sense of righteousness. Repentance breeds confession. We can't truly confess until we've truly repented. In fact, we don't see the devastating reality. If we don't see the devastating reality of our sinfulness, we think that there's nothing to confess. Repentance is the state of mourning the death of our own ability to please God. Because I worship my job, my kids, my bank account, my public image, my addictions, my ability to keep it real. Because I worship myself. I can't ever truly and wholly worship God and please God and find his favor and forgiveness on my own. I have to acknowledge my guilt. Mourn my sins. Identify the symptoms and admit the cause. Because I can't excuse me, before I can ever confess these things to God. Leviticus 5 shows us overwhelmingly that the sins that can separate God from his people are not always blatant and defiant sins. Not every sin is an intentional rock flung in the face of God. Uh, verses 2 through 4 say, if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock, of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he's become unclean and realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him. Our sin is sometimes hidden from us, but it's never hidden from God. Christian writer Max Licato speaks of confession as telling God you did the thing he saw you do. He doesn't need to hear it as much as you need to say it. But we can't confess what we don't know. We can't confess what we don't believe to be true. Therefore, we can't confess sins that we didn't realize we committed. But verses 2 through 4 aren't just about hidden sins. They're about hidden sins come to light. Every time this passage points out hidden sins, it does so in relation to their being realized. If if anyone touches an unclean thing and it's hidden from him and he realizes his guilt. If he touches human uncleanness and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters a rash oath and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt in any of these things, then and only then Can he confess his sin and offer his sacrifice? We can't confess our sins until we realize that they're sins, and we won't realize that they're sins until we meditate on our actions, thoughts, and responses in light of the holiness and sinlessness of God. We naturally love to hide in the darkness. In the darkest places of our hearts. We stake claim to these dark places and we call them unconquerable. But God shines his light on those darkest places and makes us aware of our sins. He brings our sins to light. However, we naturally hate the light and love the darkness. Like roaches who run from the glow of the refrigerator light, we and our sin run and hide from the light of Christ. We run and hide in the darkest places of our hearts, but Christ calls us to come toward the light and let that light shine in those dark places, transforming them. Once we acknowledge our sin, Christ shines his light on them and transforms them. But until that happens, until we thoughtfully and prayerfully search out the caves and caverns, those dark recesses of our hearts, We are living in unrepentant darkness. Haunted mansions are always scary on dark stormy nights. But they suddenly lose their hauntedness in the daytime. This is repentance. Allowing the light to shine in those dark places that we have for a long time said, I don't want Christ here. Repentance is embracing the guilt and condemnation that we feel because of our hidden sins and calling them out. We can't confess our sins until we first walked in repentance. And according to Leviticus 5, 5, we can't come before God and make things right until we've realized our sin and confessed it. Sacrifice without confession is pointless. And ultimately what repentance and confession do is communicate to God and to ourselves that we want him to be our Lord. We want him to be our God. Just as God desires to forgive us, we must desire to be forgiven. Christians should, therefore, be in a constant state of repentance always looking to Christ alone for salvation and always working to live a righteous life before him. The difference between confession and repentance is this. Confession is words. Repentance is action. If we have truly walked the walk, then and only then can we talk the talk. Repentance reminds us that we are not entitled To God's forgiveness, but that God is loving enough to give it to us anyway. However, we can't presume on the riches of God's kindness, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2. We can't take God's grace for granted. And we can't sin just because we know God is going to forgive us. As a kid, I used to love playing baseball. But if anyone knows me very well, I'm not very good at anything. Uh, So, once I was throwing the ball against the outside wall of my house, and I was fielding it as the ball would bounce off the wall. But, like I said, I wasn't very good. And I threw the ball too hard and missed the wall completely, and the ball went straight through my bedroom window. Of course, I got in trouble. And what was I doing throwing the ball so close to the window in the first place? I knew I wasn't any good. Why was I deceiving myself by going, no, I can get it between the 18 feet between the two windows? <laughs> but my parents were kind and they forgave me. But this forgiveness came with a stipulation, a clause, an end user agreement. Just because they had forgiven me, didn't mean I could go around smashing windows because I felt like it. The first time was an accident, but if I did it again after I'd learned my lesson, it would be much harder to convince my parents that I was sorry. But don't we do this type of thing with God? We sin, realize our guilt, repent and confess, find forgiveness, and then go right back out and do it again. We know it's wrong, but it feels so good. We tell ourselves, it's all right, God will forgive me, or this will be the last time, or who's it really hurting anyway? And we sin against the very grace that we've received. This is entitlement. We receive grace and they'll then feel entitled to receive it again and again we act like we deserve it. The opposite of entitlement is gratitude. And the gospel is not a gospel of entitlement. It's a gospel of gratitude. Motivational speaker uh, Steve Mariboli says, A sense of entitlement is a cancerous thought process that is void of gratitude and can be deadly to our relationships. How true and how important for our understanding of our relationship with God. If we have a chip on our shoulder when it comes to the way God is supposed to treat us, we're basing our whole relationship with God on a short-sighted, selfish, and cancerous foundation. The very heart of the gospel is the fact that God wants to forgive us. But we can never divorce that from the equally true fact that God doesn't have to forgive us. God didn't give Israel a sliding scale sacrificial system because the poor refused to cough up the big bucks and bring an expensive offering. God gave Israel a sliding scale so that no one could feel that forgiveness was too expensive. And this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. When Christ took on the expense and made it possible for anyone to come to him. Just like we sang this morning, come, you who are needy, come and welcome God's free bounty or his generosity. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. If we look at this passage in the light of Christ's ultimate sacrifice, ultimate and eternal sacrifice, then we see that Jesus paid for our sacrifice for us. He became the sacrifice for us. And now we don't have to do anything. We don't have to bring anything to God's altar. But faith in Christ. This makes entitlement all the more backwards. I didn't bring a lamb to the altar once and now God owes me. I didn't bring a handful of flour, and now I've got God in a corner. Christ brought himself to the altar for me, and I've brought nothing. Therefore, I am entitled to nothing. But I am graciously given forgiveness in spite of my entitled, apathetic, and cynical attitude. But there's more to it than this. More than just Jesus paying the cost for our sins. More than just Jesus just hanging there on the cross. There was an empty tomb. Jesus didn't just die, he rose again. No lamb ever came back to life As if to say your sins have been forgiven, sin no longer has a power over you. No bird ever unbroke its neck and flew away as if to say there is no more need for sacrifices. No handful of flour ever reconstituted itself and rose from the flames as if to say there is therefore now no condemnation. But God. The same God who actually wants to forgive his people is also fully capable of doing so. And this God sent his son to die and to defeat death and to put an end to the old ways of expensive grace and to usher in a new age of free but by no means cheap grace. This is not a pay what you want kind of grace. Christ paid for everything and we're not even expected to leave the tip. Therefore, we should fight our own sense of entitlement and fight for A sense of gratitude, real, life-changing gratitude. And what might this gratitude look like? Well, as I was preparing to preach today, I was suddenly overcome by a realization. All of my prayers seem like a Christmas list and God is Santa Claus. No matter what I prayed for, more often than not, it came out, gimme, 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 instead of thank you, thank you, thank you. This is not to say that it's wrong to ask your loving father for for things, for he loves to provide for his children. But I noticed that my prayers always sounded like, thanks for today, but here's how you could do a better job tomorrow. And so when we get caught in a cycle of praying, give me, guide me, help me, heal me, we come very close to the edge of entitlement. Maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I know that I need to stop asking God and start thanking God. God knows what we need. He knows what we want. He knows the difference between the two, even when we don't. God has already given us so much. Maybe it's time to start reflecting on that and thanking him. Or maybe gratitude looks like the way we approach sin. It's true. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But saying and thinking and feeling things like God has to forgive me or it's okay, God will forgive me are not reflective Of a changed and grateful heart. A changed and grateful heart uh, grieves sin and hates sin. It does not make excuses for it. Grace doesn't mean it's okay to sin. Grace means that in spite of your sin, you are okay with God. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, because Christ is watching over us in heaven and working through us on earth and will one day come again, you are. Are okay with God. You've been declared righteous, even though you aren't, because Christ died as a sinner, even though He wasn't. This declaration of righteousness, what we sometimes call our justification, is important to understand in relation to Leviticus five. The sin offering was designed not to purify the sinner, but to purify the altar. Our sin is contagious, and our God and our Father cannot be in the presence of our sin. Our sin separates us from God. That's why this sacrifice was designed the way it was. The lamb was cut in pieces, and some parts were offered to cover the sinner's guilt, but only after the other parts were offered to purify the altar from sin. The other sacrifices, likewise, were meant to first purify the place where God's presence and forgiveness would come. And only then does it tell us in verses 6, 10, and 13, some variation of, And the priest shall make atonement for his sin, and he will be forgiven. Now we, who are in Christ, have a different type of forgiveness. A different type of sacrifice. Not a regular, repeated offering to make us good with God until the next time. But a once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. Though God the Father can't be in the presence of our sin... God the Son took on flesh and came and dwelt among us and loved the cheaters and liars and prostitutes. If we look back at those sins at the beginning of chapter 5, we see that Jesus reverses all of these sins. He testified for us that we were righteous. He entered into our uncleanness and touched us in our most unclean times. And he swore to God that we were his and he would save us. And he offered himself up, not to purify the altar, but to purify us. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14 says, He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's death has purified us from the pollutions of sin in a complete and absolute way that never need to be repeated nor can be repeated. God wants to forgive you. And he's made it possible to forgive you because he loves you. You don't deserve it. You aren't entitled to it. And that's what makes it so incredible. We aren't expected to bring lambs or birds or flower or anything. Christ gave himself as our sacrifice. And all we have to do is believe in him. And all of our sins Will be forgiven. And if I had time, I would make a fourth point here that came to me last night as I was finishing up, but I'll spare you and just end with this for you to take home and chew on and think about. But if you believe this, if you believe all this that I've said about this Christ, that he died and he rose again, then you can be confident. Because the gospel is not a gospel of entitlement, but a gospel of confidence. You can be confident, but not entitled. Confidence that God will forgive you is different from arrogance and entitlement that God has to forgive you. Our confidence comes not from our own sense of pride or self-worth or what we deserve, but our confidence comes from what Christ accomplished. He offered himself as our sacrifice. He defeated death and the hold that it has over us. He forgave our sins and promised us eternal life. Jesus keeps his promises. So we should have no reason to doubt. We can be confident. In fact, we must be confident. As long as that confidence never, eclipse, never eclipses our gratitude for the grace that God has shown us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for your word. I thank you that over the course of human history, you have revealed yourself in such ways that point to him and that now we have come to know him, that he entered into our sin, To save us. And that the gospel is as simple as all who believe will be saved. In his name I pray. Amen.